My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll add my welcome to Todd's if you're visiting with us. We're, we're very glad you're here, and um, love for you to let us know you were here in the black notebook. We'd love to send you a note, say we were glad you were here. So, um, And we are in the study of the book of John. We started last fall with John 1.1, and we have been walking our way through John's gospel. And this morning, we are in John chapter 11. And it's interesting, if you walk through John's gospel, you, you see Jesus show up in some of the most interesting moments in people's lives. So in chapter 2, he shows up in the middle of the um, just terrible embarrassment of a young couple at a wedding that run out of wine. And uh, you, you think, oh gosh, well, that can't be that big a deal. I mean, that Jesus would show up in the midst of that. But he does, and, and you see Jesus showing up in the midst of people's lives in um, some of the, uh, the worst moments or in some of the worst situations. He meets a woman at the well in Samaria, and he um, uh, steps into the, the brokenness and the shame of her life. He steps into the life of a man who has been paralyzed for 39 years, which means likely his whole life. And so he steps into what everyone else around would have said, the uselessness of a man. Steps into the life of a man born blind. He steps into a sea of people that find themselves uh, following Jesus around the countryside, looking for something to eat. He, He steps into the most intimate and familiar moments of life that we have all experienced. Well, this morning, he is going to step in. This will be the last miracle Jesus does um, in his ministry here on earth. He'll, um, after this, uh, find himself in Jerusalem. There will be an anointing, and you've got a last supper, and then, then the events of the passion will begin as he's arrested and um, nailed to a cross. But this will be the last time he encounters someone, the last time he'll do a miracle, the last situation of of someone's life that he'll step into. And in fact, he knows the time's coming. He's going to say, listen, it's only, you know, the the night or daytime only lasts so long. I mean, it only lasts 12 hours. and, And we have to do this while it's day because the night's coming. And so he knows as he steps into this that his time, his ministry is coming to an end. And what he steps into is he steps into the middle of a funeral. He steps into the middle of grief. He steps into the middle of death and not just anybody's death, not just the death of somebody out there, you know. I mean, it was the death of a friend, a dear friend. And um, that's what John's going to record. And, and in all of this, what we realize is that death is not normal. It is not what we were created for. We were created for life, but sin comes into the world. And everybody that's lived after Genesis chapter 3, which means all us, we have been cursed with death and cursed with sin. And and so we're going to see Jesus have a reaction to death that I think is stronger than the reaction and stronger than the grief that we experience when it comes to death. So I'm in John chapter 11. What I want to do is I want to um, just begin reading. We'll stop periodically, um, make some notes, and then we'll keep going and we'll go all the way uh, to the end of of this story. 
So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, John does this thing there in verse 2, and you think, well, I've been reading the story, and I don't remember about Mary um, anointing Jesus with oil. Well, that happens in the next chapter, but he's wanting us to know, hey, these are people Jesus knew. These are people Jesus loved. He was, he was fond of them. We have specific names in a specific place they lived. That's who we're talking about. And so in verse 3, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, well, this illness will not lead, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when, Jesus, when he heard that Lazarus was ill... He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, Bethany is this town. It's two miles from Jerusalem. You can stand at Bethany, look across the Kidron Valley, you'll see uh, Jerusalem. And in fact, verse 18 is going to tell us, hey, it's two miles from Jerusalem. John has this sort of foreboding parenthesis there that says, hey, don't forget, this is in the shadow of, a, of what is about to come. And the request sent by the sisters was a request, I think, for Jesus' presence, presumably for Jesus' healing. And Jesus' comment on the illness is this, is that, listen, it's not an illness that leads to death, which is the first of a series of puzzling statements that Jesus is going to make. Because the reality is, if you know the story, Lazarus actually does die. And yet Jesus says this is an illness that doesn't lead to death. And in, in saying that, he's saying it, it doesn't lead to death. It actually leads to something else. And what he means by this is twofold. One is that it's not ultimate death that Jesus is talking about. Oh, there may be temporary death. It may be that he falls asleep out of this life, but it doesn't, it doesn't lead to death. I mean, we hear death and we think, man, death is final. Jesus is saying, no, it's not final. It doesn't lead to that. In fact, it leads to something else. And what he says it leads to is that the Father may be glorified, or the glory of God, and so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, we've got to take what we know that's coming in the story and to help us understand what this is. And so when, when Jesus says, listen, there's a reason for this. It's not death. Death is not the ultimate goal here. Um, it's not ultimately what's going to happen. But God's going to be glorified so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, when he means this, he doesn't mean that when Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead, that people are going to go, man, praise God. Lazarus is, is not dead anymore. You know, or... Or um, glory to Jesus, you know, the, the, the Lazarus isn't dead anymore. People will probably say that. I mean, you know, good Christian people say stuff like that, you know. Praise the Lord, and, or PTL, or, you know, whatever, I don't know. Um, but that's not what he's talking about here. So here's what he's talking about. I mean, he, he's like, okay, it's not going to lead to his death. Actually, he's going to be raised from the dead. What it's actually going to lead to, not his death, but my death. This is the event 
That is the nail, if you'll so, you know, if we can use it, it's the nail in the coffin of Jesus. It's because of this miracle that the Pharisees are going to lose their mind and pursue Jesus until they see him dead. In fact, you find out later, they say, like, I don't know, so he raised him from the dead. I don't know, we got to kill Lazarus, though. Kill him again. I mean, dead people are supposed to stay dead. Because if not, they're going to start believing in him. And when Jesus says, look, I'm going to raise him from the dead, but raising him from the dead means that I'm going to die. And it is the cross of Jesus where his glory is revealed. So, it, and it only makes sense. So, first five and six, you know, so now he loved them. And so, because he loved them, this is how we're supposed to read five and six. Because he loved Mary, and because he loved Martha, and because he loves Lazarus, he delays two days. He doesn't go immediately. He stays, and then he goes. In other words, because he loves them, he's waiting until Lazarus is good and dead before he goes. You know, one writer says this, if we impose our understanding of schedule and timing on Jesus, we will struggle to feel loved by him. If we impose on Jesus our schedule and our timing and our agenda and what we think is the right thing, we will, we will have such a hard time feeling his love for us. I mean, John wants us to know, he's going to say it several times, Jesus loves them. He loves them. The one who you love, he's sick. This is his love for them. And in his love for them, he is not denying them, but he's delaying. There is a divine plan in place. There is a bigger picture. And it's because he loves them that he waited. You know, listen, Christians who, who we, we are guilty. I mean, listen, we are. We're guilty of, of pat answers, okay? Um, somebody gets a, a bad news or, or somebody dies. And I mean, we, we can, we, and, we, and we do it innocently enough. I mean, we don't mean it. We don't, sometimes we don't know what else to say. So we text something like, Romans 8, 28. You know, all things work together for good. And I, I was talking to somebody not long ago, and, or a while ago, and they said, yeah, I could write a book on 10 verses not to text somebody. Listen, those are true verses. I'm not saying they're not true. They're totally true verses. But sometimes, you know, we just, listen, there is absolute comfort. There, there is absolute purpose. There is absolutely a reason for everything that we walk through in this life. And it's, and it's wonderfully, divinely rich and deep and complex and sophisticated. You know, I mean, the reality is, is, is it's so complex and it, it's woven together in such a way that it's not just one thing or two things, it's a hundred things that God is doing. 
in our life at any given moment. And, and what happens is, is, is something comes and, and sort of arrests our senses. And so the, the, you know, the, the tragedy comes or the phone call comes or the disappointment comes or the firing comes or the loss comes and, and we're left and we go, I why is this happening to me? You know, I mean, we can read this story. We know the rest of this story. There's no page for us to turn in our own life to see what happens tomorrow or next week or six months or six years or 60 years later. And so it can be difficult. And what happens is it, you, you, we have one, we have this testimony of believers, believers throughout the ages, countless believers throughout the ages that are able to say things like this. I, I would never choose to go through that again. And I wouldn't trade it for the world. And you see the lump in their throat and the, the humility in their heart. And without it, I wouldn't have known what I know. Without feeling the the pain that I felt I would never have known the love and the grace of God like I do. I might have gone through life thinking that I was in control. I might have gone through life thinking I controlled everything and yet when it all fell out from under me. And as mad as I was and as perplexed as I was and as angry as it was that somehow the control of my life was stripped from my hands, I came to the place and realized I was never in control at all. And I am not the creator. I am the created. And in the midst of suffering, I know and got to experience and learn of my creator in ways I never imagined. And usually that comes after a little hindsight. It usually comes after some time. And sometimes we're too rushed to, you know, we rush in and we go, hey, don't worry about this. The preacher said you're going to love this. Don't do that. We weep with those that weep. And so Jesus can say there is a greater purpose in all of this. And, and, and at the same time, I'm going to see what he calls his disciples to do with regard to this greater purpose. Look in verse 7. It says, then after he said this to the disciples, he, so after, he, after this he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And if you, if you weren't here or hadn't been here, the Judea, um, every time he goes to Judea, people want to kill him. In fact, he was just there a few verses ago. People picked up some stones. And, and the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews... Um, we're just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? I mean, um, like we shouldn't go there. And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, does not stumble. 
because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. And it's this, it's this way, it's this way that Jesus has been talking to his disciples. Then he's, and he's telling them, look, the, the day's almost over. The, the time of my ministry's almost come to an end. We're almost at the place where the, where the, where the, um, the, the dark will come. And what he means is the death on the cross when the glory is revealed. And so after he says these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. I mean, why don't we just call him on the phone? <laughs> no, he'd spoken of his death, but they thought he meant resting, taking rest and sleep. You see, for for Jesus, what he realizes is, I mean, what he knows about himself, he's going to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. I have the power over life and death is what he's going to tell Martha. Death. Jesus can wake you up from physical death, like rousing you from sleep. He has that kind of power. So in verse, uh, told them, in verse 14, then Jesus told them pleasantly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And I think we can read it that way. Yeah. Great idea. Let's all go and die. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's this, there's this messianic missional purpose of Lazarus's fate. I'm glad it wasn't there. So that you'll believe. You know, quickly, I'll, I'll tell you, as you... As you come through John's gospel, you're going to see, I mean, part of you said, well, wait a minute. They already believed. They believed in chapter 2 when he turned the water to wine and his glory was revealed in that moment. And, 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 and they believed him, it said. And then there's belief that happens all through John. And I think there's this aspect of, yes, and, and those that believed he turned the water into wine and said, we believe in Jesus. They will end up believing in the cross and the resurrection. And not just that he raised from the dead, he raised from the dead. But that he died for their sins and raised to new life so that they could have new life. And their belief began back then and it culminated here because they're not saved by believing Jesus can change water into wine any more than any of us are saved by believing that Jesus can do miracles or that he's a great teacher or that he was a historical figure. We're saved in the finished work of Christ believing he died for me and I'm raised with him. That's what we believe. That's how we're saved. And so he says, listen, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm glad I wasn't there because I'm going to show you something that's going to bring you further in your faith, bring you further in your belief. See, the reality is what we, what we see, what God does, is that he's always 
going to draw us in our life further than our knowledge of Him. It's always going to call us to a place of faith, always going to bid us, come, come and trust me. And it is sometimes the greatest disappointment for the believers to realize you don't ever graduate from faith. You never graduate from having to trust God. It's not like you're going to show up this morning and go, oh, John 11 did it for me. I can leave my faith at the door for some other sorry sap that needs it. We'll always walk by faith. We'll never walk by sight in this life. We'll always be brought to a place where we go, I don't understand that, or I, I can't see that, or I'm having a hard time believing it, but I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That faith is always something that's part of our life, especially when we can't see. And so Thomas, you know, Okay, let's go die. It sounds like a great plan. And, it, and he's called the twin. So church history has two stories about that. One, that he was Matthew's twin. Uh, Matthew, the tax, tax collector. That's why he's so unhappy. He was the brother of an accountant. And um, the other, though, and that's probably likely, but the other for a long time in church history, um, what it was said about Thomas and why he was called the twin is because he looked like, I mean, he was a, a dead ringer for Jesus. Is that, is that when you know, people saw Thomas, they were like, oh, oh, never mind. That he, that he looked like him. So, I mean, Thomas felt more like anybody. Sure, let's go. You guys don't look like him. They're going to kill me. Um, so they go. And it's, yeah, so they now that when they came, verse 17. He found that Lazarus had already been in a tomb for four days. And this is important. So the delay then brought it to four days. In the first century, what the Jews believed is that when you died, your soul hovered over you for three days. And that if you were going to be resuscitated, you were going to be restored, anything like that, it had to happen within three days because at four days, you were dead and you were gone. And your body began to decompose. And in 18, the foreboding statement, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. There's a little bit of, I think, there's respect certainly for Jesus. Like there's a little hurt. Maybe some indignation. Where were you? So then he says to her, uh, verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So then Martha said to him, I know that it will rise again at the resurrection in the last day. It's Daniel chapter 12, Jesus. I know it's at, at, the, at the end of the everything, he's going he's gonna to rise. I, I know that. And then Jesus said to her in verse 25, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is what's outstanding to me. Martha said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. It is a statement made in the midst of grief and disappointment and really, in in all truth, Martha couldn't fully in any way understand what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying, look, I know you think the resurrection is coming and life is going to be restored, but I want you to know I'm the resurrection. You don't have to wait until then. I am here now. And it is not, believe, you know, it's not that, listen, I am the way to be resurrected. It is not that I'm showing you a path or that I'm an example to follow. I am the resurrection. I hold the keys to life and death. Death doesn't have the last word. I do. So the story goes on in 28, and it says, when, when she'd said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And she's fall at his feet and through her tears, you know what she's saying? Where were you? Where were you? You ever felt like that? I'm telling you. Got to remember, Jesus, he's not put out with Martha and he's not put out with Mary. He loves them. And yet, they feel the grief of life. In 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, couldn't Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? He calls to Mary. He enters into Mary's grief. And then he he responds. See, two things to notice. First, verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. You have no excuse for not having memorized it. And then the text says he was 
deeply moved and greatly troubled. I mean, Lazarus was his friend, a friend he loved, and death got to him, and there's grief. And Jesus weeps. And if you've ever wept, even so burdened with grief, I mean, there's no words, there's just tears. And you with the psalmist David when you say, I've cried out all my tears. They're all gone. Jesus knows. He knows the deep and profound sadness and the grief of your soul. He experienced it. He wept. And at the same time, I want to argue that he feels something even deeper than that. He feels something even deeper than what we feel. Thinking over this week, so you wonder, why is Jesus weeping? He knows what he's about to do. He knows he has the power over death. He knows he's going to call Lazarus' name, and Lazarus is going to walk right out of that tomb. He knows that. What's he upset about? Some people say, oh, he's, he's, he's upset with Mary and Martha and all the people because they're, because they're, you know, They're acting hopeless. No, that's not what he's upset about. The phrase in the English, deeply moved and greatly troubled, those are fine enough expressions, but we have to feel the weight of them. Every other time that that's translated that way, it's translated as outraged. It means he was outraged. He was flaming angry. Come and see, Lord. And he's so overcome with anger and outrage that he weeps. And he sees the vast array of mourners, Mary and all the mourners, and they're crying, and and there's death, and there's loss and decay. And he knows what he's going to do, but he understands more than anybody else the sheer ugliness and terror and chain of sin and curse and death and it's because there's guilt in the world and there's brokenness and there's decay and he's outraged by death because it's not the way it's supposed to be we weren't created to die But because we live after Genesis 3, all of us are infected with sin. All of us are destined for the sting of death. In fact, the Bible calls death the last enemy. But thank God it doesn't have the last word. It gives us a preview, this story does. It's kind of like the pregame show of the Super Bowl. It's kind of like when the two boxers come into the middle of the ring just before the fight starts, you know. You got, you got Rocky and Ivan Drago. And you think, man, that, that death is sure big and blonde and going to win. And yet it's not. This is the last recorded miracle, and it's where Jesus puts death on notice. And the reality is him Him defeating death here 
means? The reason I can raise you from the dead, Lazarus, is because I'm going to die your death. You know, Lazarus isn't saved because Jesus raises him from the dead. He's saved because the one who raises him from the dead will be raised from the dead. That's how he's saved. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it and we're supposed to see the scene and then we'll be reminded of the scene later and Jesus said, take the stone away. And Martha, the sister of the dead man said, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor for he's been dead four days. The King James said, he stinketh. I mean, literally. Jesus said to her, I think he's just smiling. Didn't I tell you, if you believed, you'd see the glory of God. So they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes. Father, I thank you that you've heard me. And I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face washed or wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. He's bound, which means he did not raise himself. You know, when they find the tomb empty, you know what they'll find? They find Jesus' burial clothes all folded up neatly. He was not bound. Right? Somebody said the second greatest miracle is that a single guy folded his clothes. I think Jesus has to say his name here. Lazarus, John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. He has to say, Lazarus, or everybody would have come out of the tombs. In fact, when he's raised from the dead, they'll have this phenomenon that takes place. When Lazarus is raised, Aristotle spoke of death as that which is to be feared most because it appears to be the end of everything. Sartre asserted that death removes all meaning from life. Athanasius, in response to that, speaks for believers when he says, since the day when the Savior rose from the dead, death is no longer to be a fearful thing. All those who believe in Christ know that in dying, they no longer perish and that the resurrection will render them incorruptible. So now I'll say it again. It's not the resurrection that saved him from the death, but rather the resurrection of the one who raised him from the dead. That'll save him. See, 
Lazarus is, is, the word is Anastasia, it's resurrected, but it is not the same resurrection as Jesus. Lazarus comes back in the same old body, in the same sinful flesh, he will die again. In fact, everybody is ecstatic that day except for, I imagine, Lazarus, where I'm sure he's like, hey, I thought it said, you know, to each is appointed a man to die once. He's going to get to die twice. The Christian message is not, hey, listen, the tomb's empty. Although, that's part of the Christian message, the tomb's empty. It's not just that Jesus came back to life from beyond the grave, but that he rose from the dead for our justification, Paul says. Because I think it's still possible to believe in an empty tomb and not believe that Jesus is your Savior from sin. That's why he died. Your death in your place so that you could live. When you speak of resurrection of the dead, the first resurrection is the one we can all participate in this morning, and that's the resurrection from spiritual death. Paul says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sin and your trespasses, but God being rich in mercy has made us alive again by grace through faith in his son Jesus, not out of anything we've done. We cannot make ourselves alive But we can be born again, raised from spiritual death. And then the final resurrection, when we who have been born again spiritually will be reunited with forever bodies. And in the meantime, we're absent from the body and present with the Lord. Wet death, we do not fall into nothingness. We fall into the hands of the living God, who Jesus said just the chapter before, nothing can snatch you out of his hands. For the believer, death is no longer a payment for sin. But now it's dying to sin and entering into life. I'm the resurrection, Jesus said. You know, the other thing that Jesus will say, Paul actually gives it words, and we don't see Jesus actually say it, but theologically, the sending of Jesus in the incarnation, the eternal word of God who becomes flesh and dwells among us, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he that knew no sin... Jesus, because he was perfect. He that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might be made right with God. We might become all that we were created to be by God. We might become like Jesus. He takes our sin. We get all that he is. 
and holiness and perfection. And the one who is sin died our death and is resurrection. So how do you receive that? Well, it's, it's grace. It's grace that God's offering you. And how, how do you know that you're loved by God? Well, you receive it as a gift, a gift you could never deserve. So stop trying to deserve it. Stop trying to look around and say, well, I'm worthy because of this, and I, you know, and I didn't rat out my friend in junior high. And, I, you know, you're not worthy. You don't deserve it. But he loves you with a love you could never fathom. And it's a gift you can never pay back. It's why it's called grace. It's the gift of grace offered to you by God himself through his son, and you receive it as you look at Jesus and you go, you know what? I believe that. I believe because I'm utterly helpless against death. I can't outrun it. It'll catch up with me. And I can't fix what's broken in me. And I can't save myself. But Jesus can save me. He's claimed my victory. He took my sin on himself. He bore the curse I was under. He conquered death by dying for me. Dying the death I deserve. And then he defeated death. Defeated it. By rising from the dead on the third day. He did that for me. He did that for you. So you can live. And we'll get to that in John. This is the, this is the warm-up. This is the foreshadow. This is the, Lazarus, I can resurrect you because I'm going to die for you. And then you'll see a resurrection. What's called the first fruits of the resurrection to come. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are still alive will meet him in the air and be translated into his glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe? Is he your victory? Is he your hope? Is he your life? If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story. We thank you that it